Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. Welcome back to the Do Business, Do Life podcast. This is Kristen Shea. And as we know, in a highly commoditized, saturated industry, if you want to stand out, you can't just rely on the same old lead generation and marketing tactics. And a lot of times we hear advisors say who are very heavily generating new business from referrals and from inside their client base, what we'll often hear is marketing doesn't really matter. It's not a huge focus. We don't really need to do it. Referrals are driving our business forward. And that's not necessarily the right way to look at your business because that need to stand out still very much so exists. And in this week's Triad Member Spotlight, which we do every four weeks. Brad's talking with Triad Member Dan Deverna, who's the founder of Deverna and Co Financial, to talk about the really unique and powerful referral and new business success he's found through writing books, which is something that oftentimes seems to be it's a very powerful tool, writing and publishing a book, but it tends to not always be leveraged to its greatest potential. And a lot gets left on the table when that book isn't leveraged to its fullest. And Dan is somebody who has maximized the value of his books and then some. So instead of spending money on fancy business cards, Dan started writing books to wrangle in new business. And in 2022, his book referral strategy led to an influx of 36 million in new assets and the onboarding of 130 new households. So today you're going to hear directly from Dan, one of the coolest, coolest, coolest people, advisors, founders, people on the planet, how he does it and why you don't actually need to be, this is fun, an author to write a book. You're also going to gain insights into using checklists to scale your practice, how to personalize your follow-up process to close new clients, and how meditation, a little bit of a curveball, right, can lead to more engaging client interactions. So three big takeaways in this episode. One, how creating systematized processes can lead to greater consistency, scalability, and success for both your practice and your clients. Dan gives really great examples. He shares his journey, lessons learned the hard way to getting to this place. There are a ton of mic drop moments here. The second is that supercharged lead generation and referral strategy that helped Dan bring in 36 million of organic new assets in 2022 by leveraging his book. And then three, finding enjoyable life outlets that can also benefit your professional practice and client relationships. All right. Now, before we get into the show, this is a Triad Member Spotlight, just like we offered four weeks ago when we did our last Triad Member Spotlight. We do these every four weeks. We've got something really cool for you. Same offer as we did four weeks ago. The conversations we had were phenomenal and Brad really wants to continue these. They've been really, really fun to observe the transformations that have happened just from these conversations. So in order to pay it forward, strengthen our DBDL community and add value on a more intimate level, we're going to make the same offer that we did a few weeks ago and uh, offer up three more. We're going to stop it at three, but three 30-minute one-on-one coaching calls with Brad. So here's what you're going to want to do to grab one of those three slots. One, you're going to text coaching to 785-800-3235. This is the DBDL Insider phone number. It's in the show notes. And when you text the word coaching, we're going to send you a link to apply for one of these one-on-one coaching slots with Brad. We could duplicate Brad. We would, and he would gladly have these conversations all day long. But for now, we're just going to start with three. So don't wait to apply. We don't know if we're going to continue to do these for future triad member spotlights. We're going to see how it goes. Start thinking about the number one thing holding you back inside your business from achieving what we like to call your champagne moment over the next 12 months, which of course can be in your business or life or both. Because that's what Brad's going to be focused all in on over those next 30 minutes to helping you figure out. So again, that's text coaching to 785-800-3235. That's the DBDL Insider phone number. 
which you can find in the show notes. The show notes is also going to include links to all the resources, books mentioned, people discussed, all of which are also going to be available at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash eight, which is also going to have that link to apply for the coaching combo if you don't have your phone handy and it would just be easier for you to apply for the conversation on desktop. But with all that being said, that's it. Thanks for always listening. Without further delay, today's conversation between Brad and triad member Dan DeBerna. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. Really excited today to have my friend, a triad member, Dan DeVerna here on the show with us. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, thanks, Brad. Looking forward to it. Pretty excited about the opportunity. I am too, man. One of the things I've always appreciated about you, Dan, what's crazy, I, I didn't know you before the kind of the triad journey a couple of years ago. And really quickly, I know Sean, Sean had known you and uh, he's like, man, you're going to love Dan. And you're the type of guy, meet you, and you can go real deep on a conversation real quick. Talk about life, talk about business, talk about martial arts, talk about jujitsu, UFC. I know we got into there for a while. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And one of the things too is, as I've gotten to know more about your practice, there's a ton of lessons that I'm excited to just share. Besides being one of the top producers in the country, you're humble and you're willing to like share openly. As, as you said before we went live here, you're like, I got no sacred cows, just just throw it at me and I'll, I'll be honest with everyone. So with that, let's just dive in. Let's talk about your business journey first before we get to the life side. Let's talk about how did you get into the business? You've been in financial services for a long time, but what what was the origin story of Dan decided to go down the path of financial services? So when I was little, we didn't have money. And so I thought I wanted to be a stockbroker. Mm. And then fast forward, we go to, I'm like a grown up conceptually. I'm 19 years old. I find out I'm having a baby. I'm getting married. All this stuff's going on. So I quit school. Fast forward again, I'm working at Cooper Tire, which is like a factory where I worked 11 at night till seven in the morning. Wow. And I hear this commercial for the community college. And I'm standing there. It's two in the morning. I'm by myself putting these little uh, springs and hoses. And, and I hear this commercial and I go, oh, my God, like, dude, you're going to blink. And you're going to be standing here 20 years from now. Like, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. And so I left work that morning at seven. I drove right to the college. I sat in the parking lot till they opened. I signed back up. Went to school. 11 at night till seven in the morning, I'd work, then I'd go to school and do all that stuff. I get done with all that. I have to do an internship and I do it with New England Financial, which was part of, had just become part of MetLife. Mm -hmm. So I did that. Now I officially have my associate's degree and I'm talking to the guy that granted me the opportunity to do my internship in the last semester. And he said, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm going to go get my bachelor's degree so I can be a financial advisor. And he said, well, why don't you do that now? I said, I, I can do that now? Like, what do you mean? Like, that's great. And he said, well, I'll set you up with some interviews. And so I set up, I talked to two brokerage firms and two insurance companies, and none of them called me back. Mm. And I'm like, well, so I go back to Tim and I said, hey, I appreciate the thoughts, but I'm back to my original trajectory. I'm going to finish my bachelor's degree. And Tim says, well, I'll hire you. And I'm like, really? D done. Like, let's, let's go. 
So I go, I quit my job making 60 some thousand dollars a year. Now I'm in the financial services. I'm making $2,000 a month. Plus I have to pay for my Dell computer and I have to pay for my parking spot. I just had no idea how broke I was going to be. It was just an incredible experience. You wouldn't change any of it now. What year was that, Dan? That was 1997 and 98. 97, 98. So you, you get your associates. You're already, a, you're a parent. So you're, I'm a, you're, I'm a parent now. I'm a parent of two little boys. Oh, wow. Right. So talk yeah. about pressure. So you, you yeah. leave the 60 K you leave the, which by the way, is pretty comfortable salary back then. $67,000 a year in Toledo, Ohio checks yeah. all the boxes, man. So you're, I mean, by that, I mean, I remember I graduated college in 05 I was making 48K at Payless Shoe Source. And that's Kansas. Obviously, cost of living is not super high, but I I was killing it by all standards, you know. So I mean, that was a lot of money to give up back then. So you jump into financial services. What was it that pulled you? Because there was definitely that's a safe, secure salary. I just the, the unknown of of sales and working on commissions or fees. I, I can't really explain it. I, if I had to do that again at this age, I don't think I would have. Like, mm-hmm. there's something about this fearless, like, instinct thing that I had, and mm-hmm. it's still in there. It's just different. You know, you 30 years later, you're different. But I just knew. I, like, I, just, I can't say it any other way. I remember having conversations with people as I was leaving Cooper, and they were literally, like, mocking me. Like, mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And they were just like, Okay, like whatever. That's part of what drives the train. I remember who those people were, what we were talking about. And I remember that every one of the things I said I would do in my career, I did before I was, I did it when I was 38 years old. Like I marked those little things that I said. And like, so yeah, that was, uh, yeah, a gutsy move for sure. No one thought that was a good move. Like no one in my family, none of my friends, not one single person thought I was on the right track except for Tim Croke, the guy that was recruiting. <laughs> hey, sometimes it only takes one to believe in you. I, it's it's interesting. I did not know that part of your story. It models a lot of my journey into finance. I left a, a pretty cushy corporate job at, at the time, Payless Shoe Source, no longer exists today, bankrupt. Right. But, uh, but you know, Topeka, Kansas, that was definitely a big uh, employer back in the day. And my buddy, Sean Sparks, you know, we were talking and he's like, oh, you should come work at this little tiny sleepy brokerage company in Topeka, Kansas that no one's ever heard of. And then uh, just work off uh, commissions for nothing. Yeah. So, Sounds you great. know, but Hey, it worked out. Okay. So, well, well let's retire doesn't exist in Bowling Green anymore. The plan. Really? And Oh, by the way, like another facet of the story is I remember, cause you remember these little glimpses. I remember mm-hmm. Derek who's my oldest son. I was literally going to, I was selling my house cause I couldn't afford it. Mm. And I remember putting the for sale sign in the front yard and I watched my five-year-old, five, six, whatever he was, punching the for sale sign. Oh my so, gosh. So it's like one of those things where I'm welling up right now just thinking about it. But like oh. people that commit to this business, I mean, it's really great how successful you can be, but like those moments of like whatever you want to call that moment, like those, those things really like they stick with you. They change you forever. Yeah. The, the saying hindsight's 2020, you look at that inflection point in your life. There was like a fork in the road. Here was the safe, secure, certain way. 
here was the uncertain way. But I mean, that's just an inner belief. And, and what, whatever it was that took you down that path, I see that in a lot of financial advisors in our space. It's just that internal drive where you're going to figure it out. You're going to like the grind that all of us, it took all of us to get there. And hopefully at this point, we're now building businesses that don't require like the hardcore grind. But I think pretty much every advisor in the early days, they're like, no, I was grinding. I was the janitor. I was the new business person. I was the cold caller. I was running appointments. And it just builds that internal, just like uh, character, whatever you want to call it. And, and that's cool. I, I was not familiar with that story. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, well, let's, let's fast forward a bit. So you're at New England Financial. And that was, if I remember, primarily like an insurance-based firm. Yeah. Is that right? So we definitely had was the blind. Life? So I was selling uh, variable annuity Roth IRAs for 2000 bucks. There you go. <laughs> and, and I was selling a hundred life insurance policies a year and some disability mm-hmm. policies to go along with that. And yeah, I was doing the, the meeting, the prep, I was doing everything. And then I was doing background stuff for other advisors just to make money to put food on the table. Like you, yeah. whatever you got to do, that's what I would do. So what, like, if you go back to your early prospecting, was it cold calling? Was it door knocking? How are you getting in front of people? <laughs> so I, so New England Financial was based in Boston. So we'd go down to Boylston Street to the big, had a big gold dome, Copley Square, whatever. And uh, I remember being in this group of all the top advisors that were like in the business for less than two years. And they said, hey, who in here likes to cold call? And two of us raised our hands, you know, out of 30. And I was one of them. And the first guy is like this cocky kind of douchey guy. And he's like, well, you know, I'm really good at it, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, what about you? I said, I can't stand it. But if I keep saying how much I like it, maybe someday I will. And so it was a matter of between the cold calls and I was an orphan hunter is what I called it. So they had, New England had all these orphan policies and I would literally just get as many as I could and I'd call them all. And then I'd call them again. And sometimes if it was a good opportunity, I would call them three times in a day. And I would just say, hey, it is my job to get sit with you and explain to you all your options. And of course, you have options like you can pay more, you can pay less, you can reduce the death benefit, you can get more death benefit. Like there's all kinds of things that you can do. But yeah, that was how I was doing it. And all the different advisors, I would do different things for them as well. So it was just scrapping together whatever I could. I remember uh, one of our favorite things we would on Sunday evenings. So we, this is when cell phones, like I didn't have a cell phone. So that <laughs> give you some, some of these people are like, yeah. no cell phone. What are you talking about? Not even the big bag ones with like the cigarette lighter plug-in. Right. I was so far from being able to afford that. <laughs> like I couldn't have talked on that for five minutes a month and afforded it. Well, back so 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 all right. Not to go too far down this track, but there's like a lot of young financial advisors these days that probably don't have any clue what we're talking about. But I remember my dad. So we we grew up on a farm in Kansas, right? And I remember my dad brings home this big old bag phone, cell phone, and this was probably I was in high school, so late '90s. And the thing was, you would call somebody. And then if you kept the call under one minute, you wouldn't get charged your minutes, right? So it's like, literally, we're treating it like a walkie-talkie almost. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, now it's like unlimited minutes, unlimited texting. But back in the day, that is not how it was. It was crazy expensive. 
Well, when I needed to get a, to get a ride home from football practice, I would call my parents collect and they would deny the collect call. <laughs> but they would know that I was... <laughs> That was like a, it was like a, a poor man's pager, basically. <laughs> it, was exa- it was exactly that. That's funny. For sure. But, but Sunday nights, people had home phones and I knew they were home on Sunday night. So I would go to the office. There was a small group of us. I would drink uh, Captain and Diet. And I would listen to Kid Rock. Okay. So if you watch, if you watch. Tony Robbins ever, and you just see like, you know, the pep talk that he would give yeah, himself yeah. in the car before the talk. Like uh-huh. that was me. I was drinking Captain Morgan's and getting excited, if you will, to be able to get quasi drunk enough to talk to him, but not too drunk to talk to him. So this was your this was like your courage. It was like your courage drink, just so I could get on and be loose and and basically hammer the phones that evening. So I would do it. Yeah. Because I, I really was terrified of doing it. Like, yeah. Anyone in the right mind doesn't want to do that. It's really interesting. I also, I mean, in our business, cold calling was was the way back in the day. And I, it is scary. But one of the things we say at our house, I've, I've got this saying with our kids, what do Johnson kids do? We get uncomfortable. And when you get uncomfortable, that's where the growth comes from. And my guess is the first week, it was scary as hell. The second week, you're like, okay, I'm kind of getting this same objection I got all of last week. And, you know, a few months in, it's like, oh, just another, just another day. Is that kind of how it played out for you? (laughs) Exactly how it played out with me. And it just became part of the new normal. Like that was what, there were a whole group of young advisors, probably, I don't know, 30 to 50 that moved through in that five to seven year period. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was two of us that made it. That wow. two of us that are still in the business. Out so of- you had thirty in that class you were talking about, and then that class, I'm guessing, turned over a few times in those five, six, seven years. And at the end of those five to six, seven, two of how many would you guess in that like total span of people that came in and out? Hundred, maybe, yeah. like yeah. in that neck of the woods, like maybe, maybe one or two more that were different areas that I'm not aware of, but that's probably pretty yeah. close. Well, let's let's jump past that. Let's go to, I believe, 05, 2005. You make the decision you're going to jump and go be your own boss, your own independent advisor. What led to that? And kind of take us through that. That's probably that's a great way to tell the story. It's not exactly the, the truth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my, right. my, Maybe you my didn't manager. make the decision, right? No, okay. no. My managing partner, <laughs> was Tim, who was the mentor, the guy that took the risk on me, right? Mm-hmm. And he got displaced. So they made the Toledo, which is what big companies do, right? So the Toledo office of New England Financial is going to become part of Cleveland. So they displace him. He had done a really good job building it, but you know, it's just about math, mm-hmm. uh, not personal. And Tim came to myself and two other people and said, hey, why don't we build something where we'll, we'll control it and we'll never have to worry about this happening. So that's what we did. We started a complete, I had, I think I had 10 or 11%, like really small stake. And I was way out over my skis. Like I was in no financial position to do that. And I talked to my wife and I was like, Hey, what do you think? And I went to, had an interview with the bank and they were going to offer me a ton of money. And she's like, how long is the bank going to be happy paying you that? Mm. You know? And so we made the decision to go independent, which was a good decision. In hindsight, it was it was fantastic. I, I don't think I could have done it any sooner, which is something that kind of one of the things that I think 
a theme in my life is things present themselves when they're supposed to be there. Like I really what I really it, they come about when it's time. Mm-hmm. So what was the hardest thing making that jump from kind of the captive where you've got the home office to basically, I mean, a lot of times the independent world before you have support systems, you're like on an island. What was the hardest part of that? Well, they took, you know, all of a sudden the blinders are off. Mm-hmm. So all the things that I was told that was the truth about the company I worked for and their products being the best. And these are all the reasons and all the things I was slowly getting exposed to the fact that that wasn't necessarily the case. And so now you can do use any product you want, any life insurance company, any annuity company. There was just, it was just an incredible, incredible expansion of that. And then we started to build what I guess you would say the agency model. So we, we started to bring in other advisors who kind of worked under our system. So it was, independent group, but yet we still had a lot of shades of those old New England financial days just with us kind of being in charge instead of instead of New England. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I want to get into that, but what just came to mind when you were talking about that, and, and this is, by the way, I'm, I throw zero stones. There's a lot of great captive organizations out there. And, and honestly, had it not been for that captive organization, you might not have got your start, right? Right. But I kept my, my analogies like the matrix when he takes the pill and like wakes up and he's like, Oh, this is the real world. And one of the things I've seen just 15 years in this business, working with a lot of advisors all over the country with different backgrounds and different organizations they came up through. It's kind of like, to your point, the blinders, it's like whatever religion of finance you grew up in, it's kind of like, that's the world, you know, until You've got this blue ocean of just like, oh, and then it's almost a little overwhelming. And now, oh, wait, I, I'm not even sure where to start because it's it's such a, a much broader world. But what I do love, like if I look at the triad community, we've got obviously some of the very best independent advisors in the country. And you all connect and share strategies. We're like, oh, hey, did you ever think about this You know, life insurance planning strategy or this tax strategy? And I think the one thing, like if you're a advisor listening in out there and you're captive, or maybe you just feel like, wait, I'm, I'm not educated on all the options. One of the best hacks in the world that I've found is just get connected. You're the average of the five people you surround yourself. So get connected with other just high caliber, very ethical advisors that do things the right way. And it's, it's crazy how fast you can learn that way. And I know yeah. that's been you, like that's who you are. Yeah. So, okay. So let's go into. So you'd mentioned, I'm just looking at my notes here. At one point, when you form this new firm, you've got multiple partners, multiple founding advisor partners. And then you also, at one point, had 28 advisors underneath of the firm, some of which you didn't even know personally. And so I'm going to kind of label that the old school insurance agency model, kind of the hierarchy, sub advisor, whatever you label it. But I think that's kind of, the gist of what you were doing as that thing got rolling, just tell me, like, give me the go back, Dan sitting in that chair back in the day. What, what were you feeling? What were you experiencing? What was going well? What wasn't going well? So I had, you know, you felt very successful, like just saying it, even saying it now, it just sounds like, Oh, you're, you're a big deal. Like you yeah. got 20 advisors for you, you know, and mm-hmm. where that happened was in 2018, my one partner, Jennifer Alford and I, had bought 
how everybody else, and it's just the two of us, and she ran things. So she was the day-to-day, and I was like the sales teacher and coach and products a little bit and some of that. And I was coming up, you can't have 28 advisors without 128 distractions. Right? There's right. just So the idea of trying to do your personal production and making that the a priority, like I've always made that somewhat of a priority, but it's only a priority with the time that's left, kind of, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. So you're, you're trying to, like I'm doing marketing meetings, I'm doing teaching, and I'm once in a while helping on sales calls and just all this stuff that I didn't really love. Mm-hmm. And so if we fast forward, I'm getting ready to turn 50 and I'm thinking, like, I'm going to be doing this job. Like, it's not even a, that's a bad word. Like, it's not a job. Like, I love what I do. Yeah. But I'm going to be doing this for another 20 years, I guess. But I, I don't know why I wouldn't. And my partner really was building, like we were, she was the primary person building, not me. Like she was building these advisors and it was great. I love those people, but I was kind of reflecting and going, all right, so what are we going to do for the next 20 years? We've been doing this for 20-ish or so. What are we going to do for the next 20 years? And ultimately I came up with the idea of just like, hey, why don't you buy me out? Like you have this vision of something that maybe someday you might want to sell. I can't imagine selling like at least so far away. And who's going to buy this business and its current structure without me? So what am I going to have to wear a tie? Like, who am I going to work for? I'm going to wear a tie. Like what time do I need to be for the meetings and blah, blah, blah. So I went to her and said, Hey, this is what I, I I'm thinking. And she loved the idea. So she took on some partners. They are buying me out over the next several years. I kept the building as a down payment. And then I just kind of ported my team. Well, we didn't have to go anywhere, but kind of said, hey, it was like we were picking a kickball team under the cover of darkness. And we're mm-hmm. like, hey, I, this is my, these are my people and this is what I'm going to do. And so it, we, it really worked out really well and really, really fast too, which was shocking. But that was at the end of 2021. So we, we so part there, ways. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Keep going. Keep going. You're good. I don't want to interrupt. No, I, I mean, in my evaluation and assessment, it was besides just trying to find my joy, it was also risk reward. You know, mm-hmm. there's a couple guys, not that they're not great guys, but we had a couple guys in Memphis, Tennessee that I, I met one of them one time and one of them twice. Yeah. And I'm responsible for everything they do. And it just didn't make sense. It was a very minuscule part of my revenue and a pretty decent part of my stress Yeah, was, was to think about what, what everybody else is doing instead of focusing on what I'm doing and what we're doing for my, my clients, and my team. Yeah, that is a good observation. It was a minimal amount of my revenue and a high level of my stress. That's a bad ratio in it's business. A horrible so, ratio. Yeah. So if you've got, if you're listening and you have that going on, that's probably, hey, we should look at other options. The other thing you said that I think is really interesting, you were obviously at our launch event down in Austin in January. And as I look back, so much of that was on vision and where are we headed. And of course, when it becomes more than just you and you have a team, now it's like vision so important because it's like, hey, this is where we're going. And it sounded like at the partner level, 
you all had two different visions. She was going this way. Dan was going this way. And I'll tell you, I've had a lot of conversations with partners. There's a lot of father-son partners, father-daughter, not as many mom-son because there's just not as many uh, ladies in the business. But there's a lot of that next generation of advisors going on right now. And then there's a lot of husband-wives. There's a lot of just partnerships. And I'll tell you, one of the missing ingredients I see so often is not having the unified vision. And if you yeah. don't have the unified vision, now your team's getting whiplashed and it just depends on who they're talking to. So kudos to you, man, to make the tough decision because the, once again, the easy, comfortable decision is just keep doing what you're doing. Right. Uh, change is tough, but you're like, hey, I, I think we need to go this direction. So with that being said, one question I want to go back to that I forgot to ask. So secure, like obviously you do the insurance planning. You also do securities. Now you're set up with a broker dealer, but you also manage assets. When did this come into the picture, like on your journey? So I've been in the, like, I would say a retail advisor is kind of what I call it. Like my buy American funds and pay an upfront load and that, like that was my model and what we did for 20 years. And then moving, moving towards the, the AUM side and we, have an agreement with our broker dealer to be able to do that. And that's something that we focused on over the last few years. Another pain point with the dividing, because that's a different system. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have certain credentials and et cetera. And so that was something else that I wanted to lean into was a certain systems for those things and models and how how we were going to manage all of those things. And having really like in I'm very process driven. So like we had 28 advisors doing things 22 different ways. Yeah. And now we have 10 advisors who are doing things. One of Dan's two ways. Yeah. Like like it's not, it's not rocket science. And we also were unique in that we work, like we have some wealthy clients and I think that's great, but I didn't grow up wealthy. My parents didn't have much money and the people In Toledo, Ohio, there's a large group of people that need help that don't have uh, that don't have a lot. But if it's done correctly, they can live well through retirement. And if it's not done correctly, then they're screwed. And so I feel like that's a big part of my role is to be there for people like the people I grew up with. Like I, I literally growing up only remember like one or two people who actually had what you would say who were well off, like a couple people in my whole, and I'm not talking family, I'm talking like anyone I'd ever encountered, like a couple. So we don't focus, we focus on the people that I grew up with and oftentimes in our business, and I don't argue it because they're extremely successful. And I think there's a great, awesome place place for it, but we don't have minimums. And that's something I really don't ever plan to change. I'm gonna have a structure and a set of advisors who can handle whoever, because that's my family. And if I start putting the minimums in, Thanksgiving is going to be tough. It's going to yeah. be very uncomfortable yeah. that I have to fire my family members. Yeah, don't do that. That makes things <laughs> awkward. Well, and that, like, you bring up a point that um, I think oftentimes in our business, you know, you get really, you focus at it through the business and the revenue lens or the ROI lens. And sometimes you can lose track of what you actually do, which is help humans right. live a better life financially. 
And I, well, that's one of the things that I love so much about this business is as an independent advisor, you build the business model that you want, that serves the people that you want to serve. And I just love the freedom that this mm-hmm. business creates and allows you to do it on your terms. Kudos to you, man. Like yeah. build, build the business you want to build. Well, um, we, we actually title it. I mean, we think about it like this, like we love taking care of whales, but we, we live in Northwest Ohio and I, I fish a bit, not a ton, but yeah. we, we can take perch and walleye and we clean them faster than anybody. Like, I think we took on 130 new households last year. Mm -hmm. Like, and it is just like with, with three advice, well, I'm me, including me being one of them, like really two advisors. That's the process. That's how, like, we just have a system for it. Yeah. By the way, if you've never watched people clean perch before, it's very fun. Like when you come up to Northwest Ohio and you go, like, you just watch somebody. I can watch them for 20, 30 minutes when they just, this is what they do. It's fun to watch. Well, you you hit a business lesson. Let's talk about it. So we we went through kind of the the previous model, 28 advisors all doing 28 different things. As sheer coincidence would have it this morning, I just finished the book, Grinding It Out, the story of Ray Kroc and McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And what the, one of the closing lines in that book, Ray Kroc's genius at McDonald's was, he took entrepreneurs because he went through the story of all of the early McDonald's franchise owners. They were like dentists. They were lawyers. They were like all kinds of random walks of people that said, I want to build a franchise that, you know, can, can set me up. And I mean, he was obviously doing this in the fifties and sixties before fast food was all over the place, revolutionized like the food delivery system. But he said he took entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit, and he gave them a franchising system that they literally could not mess up. And it delivered the product in a systematized way to where legitimately, like to your like, boom, 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 we've got a process, not 28 different ways. There's two ways to get there. And so let's go ahead and transition to your new model, which I would title more of the way I look at it, like a legal firm. You know, you've got the founding partners and then you've got, hey, the new talent that comes out of law school and there's a legal process. It's not like just wing it as a lawyer. And I feel like the most successful firms, financial services firms I've seen that have scaled to any sort of level beyond just the founding advisor, like follows more of that model. And so let's talk about the before and after there. If you're cool with that, what's what's the difference? What what did you change? Everything, everything threw every, all the old stuff away and just started. Well, from scratch. And we're still doing it. We're like, Hey, like, so my lead advisor, my top guy is his name, CJ. And he has his pilot's license or he at least, I don't know. I don't think he's actively flying anymore, but if you give CJ a checklist, he goes through the checklist. Hmm. If you don't give CJ a checklist, like you, it could be a problem. Like he's not, an original, that's not his magic, right? Yep. But you give him the checklist, and I was like, "Well, but gosh, that that thing that kind of worked." Like, so we, okay, so with the CJ works for this era, works for CJ, works for Dan. We're improving it, working on it. W- works with Abby. Now we have a new, well, six months or so, Andy, and he's been in the business for twenty years, but. Andy can walk through the checklist. And now we have a new, another guy. He's a, like a service advisor for now. And, and 
sometimes CJ steps away and Liam's in there and he knows the checklist. And it's like, wow, like, why didn't I think of this? <laughs> like this? Yeah. So, and, and we're implementing that in every, in every facet, like, Hey, these are the expectations. They, they're awesome people. Like I work with amazing, really smart people. And it's just, uh, before I left too much for granted and I gave too much discretion, my business coach for 10 years is on me about that. Like you can't expect anybody to be in your brain and understand what you're thinking. So you really have to lay lay out this process. And so that's something that I've struggled with as a leader. It's very different being truly the sole leader because my the partners in the past were very much doing those things and I had a role. Well, now the role has changed and and that's something I'm still adjusting to, to be honest with you. Yeah, you just nailed a in a very simple way one of the biggest struggles we run into over and over. And you you hit checklists, processes, whatever you want to call them. But we have, and I know you're familiar with it, we have a, a framework we coach on a lot, the four stages of scale. And stage one is that advisor in charge. So go back to young Dan having the the captain and diet on his way to making cold calls. The only person that mattered for Dan's success was Dan. He was the advisor in charge. And oftentimes like when Dan, young Dan has success, oh, I need an assistant to do paperwork. I need an assistant to do this. So you kind of surround yourself with just kind of helpers and nothing against that model because you're creating income and creating jobs for people. But what you just nailed is in order for Dan, the advisor to grow and empower a team of other advisors, you've got to get the 20, 30 years of business knowledge out of your brain into other advisors' heads. And that is treating your business like a business owner, not like a financial advisor that kind of can get away with winging it now because you got 20 or 30 years of experience, right? Right. And so that checklist process, I love it. You know, one of the things we say around here is show your work. Like people can't read your mind, show your work, right? You know. So how did that checklist come to be? Did it start out as like three things and then it just grew over time? Or how did you develop that? It definitely grew over time. Like it started off with a couple things. And like CJ is my my kind of top advisor. He's a checklist guy and doesn't leave anything. Like he would be in my office all the time asking tons of questions. And finally we we're like, oh, this is what this should look like. And oh, and I'm like, then I'm like, CJ, I really need to get out of these meetings sooner. Like, what's the best way for me to do that? Because it's my responsibility to get more people in the building. And yeah. this is the, the best way to do it. So how can we do that? And and he, he's been honest with me and can tell me, like, hey, dude, you're in there too long. Or, like, if you just do it for this part and then let get out of the way. Like, you come in for the book part. And then get get out of my way. That'd be better because you're kind of ransacking the meeting sometimes, you know, and you're screwing things up. Like I have something going and then you come in and I come like I'm shot out of a cannon. It's like, you know, whether I've known the people or don't, like I feel like that's my job. I'm a high energy person. And then the next advisor couldn't be more different than CJ, but almost exactly like She's a female, but she's 25 years younger than me, but she's got all the pizzazz. So mm-hmm. we focus on the checklist is you go back to the checklist. It's the same checklist for both of them. The hard parts for CJ are easy for Abby. The hard parts for Abby are easy for CJ. Yeah. And uh, it's hard to get Dan kind of or Abby to go by the checklist. It's harder 
CJ looks at the chess list and loves it. Abby yeah. can wing it and get away with it. So, but being consistent and predictable is what we're trying to do. We want the same experience for everybody. You nailed it. What's what's cool about the checklist? So, so that's just process 101. Any entrepreneur knows like if you do something over and over, it should be a process. And there's a reason an 18-year-old kid can run a McDonald's. The systems and processes are so tight. Like now you don't even have to have a person to order a burger there. You just go to the screen, tap it, and then here's the number two or whatever shows up. Yep. So as we go through this, I've failed to say this. So 2005, jump to independent, multiple partners. You brought in about 2 million of assets. Yeah. And I was a big deal, dude. Just yeah. I was, yeah. I was king of the world with 2 million. Yeah. Well, and, and so now fast forward. So that's 2005. That's not that long ago, man, in terms of business. That's, you know, 15 coming up on 20 years. Yeah. But massive transition end of 2021. You go down more of a tighter process driven, like here is Dan's system. Here's the way we do things here. Empowering a team, training a team, by the way. I want to give you compliment because oftentimes I've seen a new advisor. They don't have to kick the old advisor out of the meeting. They're like, where the heck is the old advisor? They're just right. running deep in and expected to swim. So the most successful firms we've seen is they've got a founding advisor or a trainer that actually cares about them and pours into them till the time where they can stand on their own. So I think that's huge that your advisors are like, okay, Dan, we're good. See ya. Because there's a lot of advisors that don't. You should know I've done that too. <laughs> okay. <that's good. laughs> I don't want any of my people to watch this and go, uh, he only told half the story because with Abby, she's just so freaking good. Yeah. Like I'd be like, I like, she's got it, you know? And she did. She had a checklist at least, man. I mean, I'm, yeah, trust me, I've yeah, seen, she, she I've did. seen a lot over yeah. 15 years. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. 2021 big change. So basically 2022 was your first kind of full year. Yeah. And, and I would say it was 10 month year, like realistically, yeah. The transition from getting everyone out of the building and the licensing, like we had a hierarchy with all of our stuff, even even with you guys, like there was a change and and all that stuff and them moving out of the building and us, it, all of it. Yeah. We probably didn't really get back, really back to work until mid-February or March 1st, like truly feeling like we were, were back to our version of normal. And it was never back to the old version of normal. It was different, but yeah, it took a little bit of time. For sure. Well, here's what's awesome about that. When I look at the numbers and brought in approximately 36 million of new assets last year, organically, you're not out buying firms or anything like that. Right. Uh, 36 mil in a 10 month year in a massive transition where you just literally shuffled the whole deck and kind of started over from scratch in many aspects. That's stellar. So congrats on an incredible year last year. I want to make sure because I see the clock ticking by. You do some, you do a lot of incredible things. We just hit processes and kind of the systematizing of the sales process of all of the triad members. And we work with some incredible offices. One of the things that I've seen you do really, really uniquely and well is how you've incorporated books, writing books into your whole practice. It's, I, I wouldn't say it's like a marketing funnel. It's like woven in to the fabric of your company. So I'd like to pivot and talk about 
where in this journey did that come about? And give me the Dan Deverna version, like life before the book, life yeah. after the book. So what did that look like? Yeah. And so I think, uh, so my business coach liked the idea of me writing a book. I saw John Rulin who had this metal business card and I thought that was great. Yeah. So I hired a marketing company, find me cool business cards. They were going to cost like five bucks a pop. My business coach is back to me going, dude, write a book, $5 business cards. And it gives you credibility. It's better than any fancy business card. So I try to write a book on my own, realize I can barely spell, try to do it with dictation. I, I can't put things together. Finally, I hire this Ivy League guy. And this is awesome. Like this dude is great. Went to Columbia, great author. He spends some time with me over the phone. We get two chapters done. I give it to three people. I give it to my business coach for one. He comes back. He's like, God, you spent some money on this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, pretty good. Good deal. Huh? He's like, yeah. What'd you get an Ivy league guy? I'm like, yeah. Like it's like, that must've cost you. Yep. Sure did. But it's good. You know, he's like, Hey, you want to know the problem? And I'm going to take out some of the swear words. But I said, no, like, what's the problem? He's like, it's well-written. He goes, but you're a hillbilly. And you can't have a hillbilly's book be written by Ivy League guy. Yeah. (laughs) You need to find somebody that can capture your hillbilly voice. And I'll take it. Like, I grew up, like, out in farm country type stuff. Mm -hmm. And he was right. And that's the feedback I got from all three. So I found a guy who is local here and I would pace behind him while he's smoking cigarettes and drinking Jack and Coke. He's just typing away. And so we get done with this book and it it has my voice, right? Like it's, it's definitely me. And then we start to get into, so that was a guide to union workers retirement. And then what year was that, Dan? When did you write that? I would say that let's probably take that six years ago. Okay. Not that long ago. Wow. Okay. No, no, not really. And then we got the, uh, the idea that like I was spending a lot of time in Vegas. And so we took the same book and we took the construction part off and we put the Las Vegas because they have very large unions out there. We put Las Vegas, like flashy Las Vegas stuff for the hospitality workers. Mm. And then or like so that was just the same book with a different cover and mm-hmm. then we took the next phase which was hey we're working with a lot of medical professionals how much could we get away with this book not rewriting and just taking it and so my guy built that out and so we have the same like i've written i think like six books and there's at least 70% of this book is the exact same Mm-hmm. He changes like medical professionals for union workers and the covers are obviously different and these subtle nuances, but everyone on my team knows not to, there's two books that if you turn to page 37, it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> and my people know, don't give out those two. Like if you have a union worker and a medical professional, give out one of them. Like we're not giving both because they're going to see just too much of the same book, right? So that was kind of how that started to happen. Well, a couple lessons I take from that. The first one, you don't have to write to write a book. And I think that's one of the biggest hurdles or mindset blocks that a lot of financial advisors have. It's like, oh, I just, I'm trying to write it and I just can't write it. And, you know, there was the best selling book in the world ever. It's called the Bible. Jesus didn't write a word. 
He just said some stories that other people wrote down. So I, I know there's a lot of companies these days that will actually scribe it, like what you're talking about, where you can kind of put it in your own words. I, now, with that being said, I'm not recommending have somebody else write a book and then slap your name on it. And what you did was you took what was in Dan's brain and then put it on paper, but then also took that second step where you made it your voice as well, which is, I think, really, really important. Super important. Because if someone hears me speak, it it's the same words. It sounds like me. Like it's it's not this book written by somebody else. It is yep. it's definitely got my fingerprints all over it. And then we learned how to use the book. So for I would say the next three or four years, we didn't really know all the way how to use the book. Like we gave them out. Yeah. And I would say, Hey, how many do you want? You know, and I'd give them three or four books, and then it just seemed like nothing happened. And then it still feels cheesy to me to sign my books. Like, I got to be honest, still feels cheesy, but we've made it fun. Yeah. So I'll walk into the, I'll walk in, we've got the client. We'll do this in the very first meeting. It, we'll do it in any meeting, but the first meeting is when it seems like it's most effective for us. So I'll be, Sally will be sitting there and I will come in and I will say, hey, Dan, nice to meet you. Did you get one of my books about, especially if they're in one of these niche markets? Mm-hmm. And I will sit there and I will go, so you have any friends that should get one of these? And usually they'll be like kind of ho-humming. And, and then I'll say, well, what, you know, and I'll, I'll start, if they didn't get one, I'll write one to them. But usually they have had one or seen one or whatever. And then the second move is I will sit there with the pen or the marker right up against, like I'm getting ready to write. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, so who should I be writing this out to? This is extremely crucial. If I give Brad two books, I have to, if Brad's going to give one to Sean mm-hmm. and one to Jordan, I have to write their names in. I, I don't know why that's so important, but the delivery has gone up exponentially, like a hundredfold when we did that. So when I give you a book with Jordan's name in it, you give it to Jordan. For when sure. I get, when I give you a book with nothing in it or no specific name, I, I think they end up in the garbage can at the gas station. I don't yeah. know, but they get delivered and I make light. So I, as I'm waiting for you to say, Jordan, you get like, I'm asking you for a referral. And then if I can reach them and I usually find a way to reach them, I tap them on the shoulder and I go, Hey, I'm not selling you books. My mom's the only one that paid full price for this thing. Right. And you know, maybe the only one that read it. Ha ha ha. Now we're all good. Was that, did you say Jordan? Is that who we're writing it out to? And I have found when we're tracking it, if I give out two books, I get one new person from those two books. Hold on. Stop there. If you, okay. So Brad comes in, let's just use that exact example. My two friends, Sean and Jordan, you give me two books, you write each of their names to Sean, to Jordan. I now retire well. DJ Devern. So I walk out with two books, maybe three, if one's my own. And you have found if I walk out with two books for friends, one of those becomes a client. That's your ratio. Wow. So the question is, how do you give out more books, right? So what's your follow-up from there? Like if I'm an advisor listening right now, what, what's the follow-up? How do they get your office from that? The follow-up would be, and it's me. So this is where we're, we're starting to work on this because there's too much Dan in the system. But this is what I, I think of this as fun. Like, this is like a sport. 
This is back to your cold calling days, man. This is back. This is what I, who I am. Like, this is the no. grittiness of, of this. And so, like, we're the, probably the only group person or the only group in Triad that I know of that doesn't do workshops, seminar. Like, we don't do any of that stuff. And, and I'm going to do that stuff because mm-hmm. you guys are right. And I'm wrong for not doing it. But, but I want to perfect this. I want to go a little further. I think we can. I know we can get a little better with a couple things. And we're so darn busy. It's like, all right, how much do we have to expand to be able to do all the things that you got to do? And when yep. someone has that book, you've established credibility. The first meeting is like it's already done. It's a slam dunk when you meet mm-hmm. with people for the first time. And mm-hmm. so that process we're still working on it, but my process would be, I would reach back out to Brad and say, mm-hmm. Hey, it, like, if you don't mind, I want to, I wouldn't mind following up with Jordan on the book. Like, and or I didn't hear from Jordan yet. Just making sure blah, blah, blah. It's, I have a bunch of different ways that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And then I will people, when you're sitting in front of them, they have a hard time saying, Hey, here's Jordan's number. Yep. What I have found, though, is if I give it a little space and I back off and I say, hey, Brad, I know Jordan wants to talk to me, but sometimes it's like intimidating. They don't know me yet. So if I haven't heard from Jordan the next time we talk, is it cool if you give me your number? All Brad's really worried about that is that I'm not asking for Jordan's number right now. Yep. So if I want to communicate to Brad two weeks later on a Tuesday at 10 a.m., asking for Jordan's number, Brad sends me Jordan's number almost every time. So, okay. So deconstructing this, I want to make sure I'm in your office. Sean has a book. Jordan has a book. Hey, if I, you know, if I haven't heard from Jordan or Sean, it's cool if I get your number later, right? Like that would be kind of a quick version of that conversation. Now I walk out. Now it's two weeks later. Now you're going to step two is, Hey, were you able to give Jordan the book? By the way, I'd love to reach out see what he thought of the book, grab his number. Is that cool? And is that like a, a text where they're just shooting you over his yeah. contact info or yeah. like standard? Or if I'm talking to Brad or Fred's in the office or whatever it is, I, mm-hmm. I used to do this, like I called it the magic show. I had this like piece of paper that was like a strange, not strange color, but unique color. Mm-hmm. And I called it the, the magic list or something, or like the joke magic clown list or something. And people were like, what are you doing with that? Oh, this is the list of all the people that are never going to call me. Like I'm writing Jordan's name on it. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, well, I mean, I'm a scary guy and people don't want to call me. So like, it's cool. And they're like, like, they're just puzzled and kind of laughing. And I mean, I think that's one of the things I, why I think I'll be doing this so long is like, it's, it's sporty. It's fun. It's like, yeah, like chess, but just trying to figure out the best way. Cause we know, I, I think, and this is, this came from some Grant Cardone stuff and, and those things, but like, I think it's my job to be the best salesman I can be because people are better served when they're, when they leave the room. So yeah. I don't have any guilt. I don't feel bad about this stuff. Like I'm the guy that's standing in the lifeboats, Titanic's going down. They're scared of the water and they're scared of heights. And I'm trying to get them in that lifeboat, knowing they're going to be good. If I can get them in there, so whatever I got to do, I'm cool with doing it. I don't do anything unethical, not even close. Yep. So all yeah. my responsibility is just to keep them safe and put them in a better place. At the end of the day, it's conviction. It's, I know you're better served. because We know, I mean, personal finance is the biggest thing that gets in people's way, in my opinion, is procrastination. Ah, yeah, I'm going to get to it someday. I need to do that. 
And unfortunately, I'm guessing at your stage in this business, you've got some very sad stories of people that procrastinated and then a life-changing situation happened that could not be corrected financially. I'm assuming that's a fair assessment. So to your point, I love the analogy of the lifeboat. It's like, hey, what do I need to say to nudge you down the path you need to do anyway? I mean, that, that's the, the whole point. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to build a legacy for your kids or grandkids that you haven't even met yet, but you got to take the first step, right? Right. So I love that mindset. And by the way, I think more advisors should have that. Our mutual friend, Chris Smith, one of the things that I love that he coaches on, he's like, advisors are a dime a dozen. You need financial leaders. Right. And that's what that sounds like to me, Dan. I love that. I think that's the new role of Dan is once in a while, besides the book and the fun and that stuff, is to enter the room when somebody needs that a little bit of extra, like yeah. a little extra nudge, a little like, come on, like, yeah. we'll be okay. Come. And I really like that role. I like yeah. it. It's fun. Cool. So on the book front, I'm going to, I'm going to consider, we're going to get into uh, martial arts here in a second. So here's my transition. I consider you the black belt of books and triads. So anything else on the book front, like if I'm an advisor out there with a book or I want to write a book or like, what has it done for your business? I guess we haven't got to that. Like before the book, after the book, what's it, what's it done for your business? I, I mean, it's just, it makes it better. I think people are coming in. If they've read any of the book, they hear the voice. It matches that $5 business card idea is meaningful, but the credibility that goes along with it, nobody writes a book about something they don't know about. You won't see me writing a cooking book. Like that's just not happening. So they know like that just raises you from, from here to here. And I think that's a really big deal. And the next time we talk, like I promise you, I will have developed this more by the next time that I see you in person. Like we are actively, this is like priority like one of me before we start the workshops and the seminars, like we will get this to another level. I don't know what that looks like yet. We've got a few ideas, but that is, it is a priority to me. Well, I've already made a note right at the top of my notes here. Uh, we're going to dive in on that. We've got some really cool ways to incorporate books into live events. So let's have that additional conversation offline. One other quick idea because you're writing very niche books, the union workers guide. And I know you've kind of, I call it the Hal Elrod, you know, the miracle morning and then the miracle morning for entrepreneurs and real estate agents. So you kind of repurpose the content. But what I love is like, guess what? Financial planning does not change that much. You said 70% the same. That makes sense. There's probably 30% different based on, you know, the niche or whatever. I did a podcast with Tucker Max and this was a cool, I'm going to share it. Maybe you're already doing this. It was a book written for high net worth divorced women. So very niche. And what this advisor did was he went to where are the places these individuals would go? Like if it was a funnel, where would they stop along the way? And so what he ended up doing was giving a stack of books to attorneys that would divorce attorneys that basically, I know things have changed a lot, but traditionally, a lot of times the husband is the one managing the finances. And so when the the wife is now divorced, especially if they have a lot of money, kind of in over the head, not sure where to turn, he would hand her the book. And he's like, that was his marketing funnel. So with your niche books, I see a ton of opportunity of like these centers of influence. Have you gone down that path? Is there, is there anything you've tried successfully there? We have some champions is what we call them. So Mm. we have 
like it's really hard to get somebody that doesn't give referrals to give you any. Yeah. And then if you get somebody that does like lean into that, like if they give you two, they might give you 22. Yeah. Like, and they are centers of influence in their, like, they're just, there's just a few of them. They're very special people. They really, they understand us and know what our, our best interest is in taking care of them and their friends. And so we will lean into that. We, we haven't found it to be like, we haven't gotten anybody that's truly in a system where they're going to get where there's repeatable, like somebody that's a focal point that people are coming to them all yeah. the time about that stuff. So we, cool. that, that is on my radar is one of the things. Very cool. Okay. The time is ticking by way too fast and we've got a lot to still talk about. So I want to go to the life side of this. So one of the, this is the do business, do life podcast. And I know one of the things that you and I specifically, Dan, have talked a lot about just life and a conversation that comes to mind is you were at our very first, what I would call our uh, kind of kickoff at triad. It was the the Napa event, um, beautiful setting. Uh, I think we had maybe 15, 16 triad members at the time. And then fast forward a year later, we're at Palmetto Bluff, the Montage in South Carolina, an incredible property. And we're in a pool with some fruity drink in our hand. I think it was a mojito. I don't remember. It was really hot. <laughs> and uh, I remember you said something to me that really, there's certain inflection points as an entrepreneur and on this new chapter that I'm on that just are really meaningful conversations. And what you said to me in the pool that day was incredible. You said something to the effect, and if I screw this up, please correct me. When I was in Napa with you all and you had 15, 16 offices, the caliber of humans in the community, I was blown away by. And you said nothing about business. You said nothing about how much business or production or any of this stuff that happens a lot in our space, but humans and people I want to hang out with and do life with. And you said, I was kind of scared, you know, as this thing got bigger, that maybe it'd lose some of that early magic. And in South Carolina, you said, wow, you guys have more than doubled. And I think the caliber of humans gone up. And that was really meaningful to me because I can tell you this chapter is not about premium or production. I've done that before. This is about doing life with people that we can help. And just like, I want to look forward to everything we do. And you shared that with me. And I don't know if I even told you how much that meant in that moment, but let's talk about doing life. Like where did that come from? Because yeah. So if you don't mind, I would, I, so I remember that. And as you said, hey, I think we talk more about life than business. I don't think we ever talk business. <laughs> not our place, you and I, like, that's not what we do. We talk life. I'm like, hey, I'd maybe like to get into the cards. I'd like to, you know, we both yeah. like UFC, like I'm doing this and that. But I, I just want to say, because I haven't told you this, uh, well, two parts of that. I loved Palmetto Bluff so much that I extended my stay by two days because I had my kids and it was just magic. Right. And I'm like, this is awesome. I'm Hey, can you change? Yes. We got, and I'm spending a preposterous amount of money a night. You know, the place is just bananas, fantastic place. And so when everybody left and Chloe noticed it too. So Chloe's 21. Right. Mm. And, and she's like, when everybody left, it just feels different. And I'm like, you know, you're right. Like this, it would, the place is great, but it's way more than that. Like it's the people. I feel like we could get together on somebody's farmland with a barn 
with some some uh-huh. tents, and it would be probably the same kind of magic. And oh, by the way, fast forward to Austin, and it's getting better. Like it's getting better. And that the neat thing is like something I never crossed my mind because I'm thinking of the oh, it's going to get diluted, right? Like oh, you, there's just a lot of knuckleheads in our business, and so. Whoever's doing the filtering is doing a great job filtering knuckleheads. But the second part is as it's gotten bigger, there's more ideas from really smart, talented people. Because the thing, I and I've tried to express this to Chloe because I'm slowly trying to coerce her into coming to work with me someday, is like if anybody in this room, like just know these are the top, literally the top half of 1% of advisors in the world. Like they're they're part of an elite club that you don't get granted access to without having certain. So if you to get in the room is one thing, qualification wise, and then whatever filtering system. So I think so far the trajectory has just been it's in, it's exceeded all expectations. I mean it's really incredible. So, but just a little sidebar. Thank, thank you. And, yeah. and what was cool, like that founders retreat. By the way, I've sacrificed a lot with, you know, I'm, I'm married and have three kiddos. And there's been a lot of nights where my wife has been home when Brad's been on a business trip. And, and as we looked at the next chapter, I'm like, let's not do that. That's dumb. Like, like let's do business and do life. And so the whole founders retreat was designed to be very spouse, significant, other friendly, very kid friendly. And what was cool is like, I think you were down there a day or two and you're like, there were more kids on the trip than there were adults. And of course, it wasn't chaos, you know. We had we had it organized, and there was all kinds of fun stuff going on. You could still have an adult conversation, but I think you actually flew your kids out after the event start, after the experience started, didn't you? Yeah, Brody wasn't. So Chloe was with me. Brody was doing band camp, and then he realized he didn't like band. So on Tuesday, he's like, "Hey, Dad, I want to quit band." I'm like, "Are you sure?" He's like, "Yeah." I go, "All right." I'm booking you a plane ticket. So you're leaving in the morning to come down and hang out with us. And so that's what happened. And the only downside of the whole trip really was that Brody is now exposed to $84 ribeye steaks. And And so now he's like trying to order every, every time he can get a steak, he wants that. He wants a big old ribeye. And uh, if that's the worst thing going on, I think we'll be okay. He will be very cultured. It will yes. be very cultured. One of the interesting parts of your backstory that I love and actually inspires me is your journey with martial arts. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it a little bit before we went live. I'm going to go high level. And then I want you to like, give me the why behind it. So 17 years in karate, which is kind of where you started out. And I know it was an interesting, a different version. So maybe you can explain yeah. that. And then four years in jujitsu mm-hmm. and What's cool about martial arts to me, it's yes, there's the physical aspect, but it's the mental aspect. And you were telling me about like some meditation practices. So give me like your pitch on this is what it's done for Dan, the human and martial, your martial arts journey. Yeah. So recovering fat guy, anybody that I show the picture to, like I was 240 pounds and no taller than I am now. Like it was two two forty. Just for perspective, uh, for people listening on audio, how tall are you? I'm about, I'm I'm like five nine and a half, maybe five wow. ten okay. in the right shoes, and now I'm like buck seventy six, maybe one hundred eighty two pounds, like whatever, but sixty pounds heavier ish, mm. and 
uh, I said, if I can get down to 220 pounds, I'm going to start martial arts. Mm. So I started martial arts and I did not realize what I was walking into. Like, I just wanted something. I'm a guy that likes the accountability. I liked it when the coaches would yell at me. I liked being inspired. And I walked into Sensei Hurtseller's dojo and it just felt different. The interesting thing about martial artists is they're, they're the toughest people that you know. They are some of the sweetest people you will ever know. Like they do not, they're not looking for a fight. They don't need a fight. They know the outcome of the fight. Like they would talk you out of fighting. Like this doesn't have to happen type of a thing. And so they have a peace and a, an awareness and it, it matches with the triad community in a, in a really great way. And wanting to share and having other people like a, the service and, and that and sharing those things. So I started because of, uh, I started because of health and accountability. And I just got so much more than that. Like so much more than that. I have, I, I learned meditation when sensei, when you start to rank tests, you have to meditate with no movement for, I think it starts at like, we meditate for two to five minutes every class, but then we would meditate to move up in rank. So I've meditated for, I think the first one is maybe 20 minutes. And then the last, most recent was three hours with no movement. Wow. So if you, if you move or sneeze or have to go to the bathroom, like you got to start over. So you really don't want to do that. But if you can meditate for five minutes, you can meditate for three hours. It's, it's not as hard as people think, but it's just like running a marathon. You're not going to do it on your first take. Like it's a process for sure. Well, so, so I've, Michael Hyatt was actually the guy that inter, introduced me to meditation. And I think your analogy on running a marathon is accurate. You can't just most, I mean, most people can't just go out and run 26 miles, but you run a few miles a day, then you build up the endurance. Right. In your like if you look back to where you were like truly in a Zen-like place for you, I feel like time just evaporates. Like five minutes could be five hours. Like you just lose track of the space. Have you found that to be true as well? I think there's glimpses of that mm-hmm. for me. I think sometimes when some of the other people that I've talked to about it, they find this more Zen place. For me, it's like I have to constantly remind myself <laughs> I can't. Because I'll be sitting there and we're, we focus on the breath. That's mm-hmm. the process. And so we're focusing on the breath, the inhalation, the exchange, the exhalation. And then you smell something and it smells like pumpkins. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting at my grandma's table yeah. eating pumpkin pie. And then I realize, oh, back to the breath. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The little rabbit trails your mind goes on is incredible. If you were going to give advice to a beginner that's just listening to this, that's never meditated in their lives, but wants to get started, what advice would you give them? Like, give yourself a break, <laughs> like just relax, relax and sit quietly. Try not to move. And if you move, that's okay. I think that's the thing that people are just so strict about it. Mm. Like, it's just for you. It's not going to benefit anybody else. Probably. I mean, maybe you'll be a little nicer, but I would say just try to relax and don't be so hard on yourself. It's take two to five minutes. I mean, start with two minutes. Close your eyes, sit silent. You can be sitting in a chair, sitting on your on the floor, like however you're comfortable and focus on the breath. And I 
I still do it. So it used to take me a long time. And now it's like two minutes of meditation. And it's like somebody hit, you've seen that easy button, but it's like the reset button. Like you have a crazy day and all of a sudden you just meditate for two to five minutes. And it's like crazy. And, and probably my favorite thing with martial arts was an analogy that Sensei gave forever ago. And when you walk into our dojo, you bow, like you left hand over right and you bow. And he said, just have all of your troubles mounted firmly on those shoulders. And when you bow, they just fall off and they leave them at the door. And in martial arts, you have to pay a lot of attention. Like you can't be anywhere else. If we're sparring or working together and I'm thinking of something, what, like what's going on with my family, I've got this something like I could hurt you or you could hurt me. Like that's not something. So leave that stuff at the door. Now, the neat part is when you go to leave, it's up to you if you want to pick that stuff up again. Like, you can leave it right there. It'll be fine. Like, we'll take care of it. Like, that's kind of what he says. I was like, wow. Like, that's, that one stuck. Sensei, yeah. Sensei gives a lot of talks, and it's kind of like, like, if you've ever been going to church and the pastor's saying something, and you're, like, looking around, like, he's just talking to me. Like, this is, <laughs> happens so much. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that I'm hearing from you too, think of it like the, I, I, I'll never forget. There was a moment in my life. I was like my upper twenties and this gentleman that was like a multi-billion dollar asset manager, like a really big deal. And he invited me to his office and I'm just a kid. I'm just a farm kid from Kansas. Right. And he gave me 60 minutes and he was fully present. And I just remember the power of presence of somebody like literally not distracted, not on their iPhone, not texting somebody. But I'll tell you, that is about the best gift you can give another human. And that's what I hear is like the the martial arts has created this presence where like you're there for that thing, nothing else in that moment. And uh, I'm assuming 17 years of that practice has really helped you there. Is that fair? Yeah. And it's definitely helped with that. And it really helps with the business hmm. because there's nothing worse than being in a meeting that's important to somebody and you not treating it like it's important. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's probably things that are worse, but that's pretty bad. Yeah. Not- well, let's, let's go from, okay. So a discipline in karate, and I know it was like his own version of karate. So for maybe beginners like me, maybe explain what that is. And then let's go to jujitsu and maybe compare and contrast the two disciplines and what they've done for you. So my sensei doesn't give out black belts. Like, like you see these black belt academies and there's nothing wrong with, it. I think they're great. I think martial arts as a whole is great, but sensei created his own curriculum and he left karate represented the United States back in the day. But he said, I really want something different. He was a big fan of Bruce Lee. He had a uh, Sifu Brown who's up in Michigan. Who's a really big deal. And he does, uh, Kung Fu. And so he wanted to blend all these things together. And you can't do that with just the karate curriculum. And mm-hmm. jujitsu was one of those things. And so I got exposed to jujitsu from my sensei. And then as he, as we finally got, we have now have three black belts, but there was testing for two of them four years ago, the final test. And they did a ton of jujitsu. And I'm like, my jujitsu is crap. Like I can't be a black belt with sensei like if I don't get better at jujitsu. So I talked to somebody, one of my friends that has done both. And he's like, this is the place to go. Dante Leon is like a top 10 pound for pound guy in the world. And he's actually in Toledo. Wow. Like, yeah, kidding me. 
And so I go to that and uh, I got a really cool nickname. It was, it's easy roll because I was there with all these guys and I was the new guy. And now it's a much bigger gym and there's new guys all the time, but I was the new guy for six months Mm. and they would literally line up to get with me because I was the easy person to go with. (laughs) So the, the nickname came about because one guy was waiting kind of by me to grab me to let's go roll. And another guy says, I got Dan. And I go, that's not the way it works. If you want me, you got to wait in line. And the other guy goes, yeah, you, if you got to wait for the easy roll. And that was like, <laughs> so I have the best and worst jujitsu nickname. Uh, as the awesome. easy roll. So, awesome. um, and there's nothing more like that is a very different form of martial arts. It's, extremely humbling. I'm, you know, in my fifties now, I'm 51 years old, just turned and I'm going against people that would not even be my oldest kid. Like Mm. my oldest kid is Derek and he does practice jujitsu and he was at class this morning and I didn't roll with him, but I rolled with a variety of other guys and they just always seem to be bigger and stronger and getting better every day. And I feel like I've plateaued, but I had a 240 pound man with probably 9% body fat on top of me for four minutes this morning, smothering me. And I'm talking to him like, this is, he's like, yeah, this is going to be the worst part of your day. I'm like, yeah, under you. Yes. Everything's easy from here. Everything's easy from here. And uh, it's just so much fun. And I know you participate in activities with young people that challenge you. And I think that's what the, you know, love my dad, but the difference between me at 51 and my dad at 51 is just everything. Yeah. Well, there's a theme I'm picking up from you, Dan. You've gotten comfortable with getting uncomfortable in your life. Like you go back to that early journey as a financial advisor, leaving the sure thing, then going to splitting from a partner because just you had two different visions to just even showing up at jujitsu this morning. And um, there's a lesson there. And from my experience, the most successful people in the world, they've got that common trait. So I love that in you. Keep doing that. I know you will. By the way, I'm going to commit. We've got a little jujitsu club, by the way, going here at Triad. We were talking about Ed, you, Jacob. There's another one I'm missing somewhere. Yeah. Nico told me he's Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, hey, watch out. We might show up at the next experience and there might be some jujitsu who would be who would be the uh, goat? Royce Gracie? So would that be the goat? I think the Gracie family as a whole would be the goat. Right now, Gordon Ryan is king of the food chain for sure. Right now, but I think yeah, I think you're going to the Gracie family for yeah. the traditional. And I, I when I was in Chicago with Sean back in the day, I went down to to uh, Carlton Gracie's gym in Chicago and got equally uh, dismantled. <laughs> it was very humbling. Well, I'm making a note. I'm making a note. So I think, I know we have a mutual love of UFC and we were talking some of that in South Carolina. By the way, have you bought your first sports card yet? No, I'm still, I got to get in. I feel like I'm, I need some mentoring in this area. I'm here for it. I'm yeah. here for it. Yeah, Who's I'll fly Kansas and we'll, we'll do it together. <laughs> I feel like UFC really helped put jujitsu on the map because I mean, it was just like the guys that had the jujitsu background just started taking over the UFC. Who's your favorite fighter or two to watch would just admire, like from a jujitsu standpoint? Wow. That's such a big question. Jujitsu in the UFC. <laughs> I mean, GSP 
like he kind of brought, so he's got Donaher, who's the best coach ever. Yeah, George St. Pierre, who's just a student of the game in every way. And I think so much more measured. And the thing about jujitsu is it's not really that that makes it so different. Like if I got in a street fight with a guy that's a decent fighter that I'm probably going to win, you know, but they're like, he could get a shot in and I could just go down. And that's the way jujitsu doesn't have those accidents. Yep. The rank in jujitsu is so pure. Like if you lined up a black belt, that's a legit black belt against all the lower ranks, maybe besides ground, like, He's winning every time, not, not sometimes, not most of the time, every time, every time. Like it is a very, it is a developed thing. And it's, uh, there's just only so many ways that the body moves. And it's like, like a chessboard with a master. Like there's only yeah. so many ways you can move these things and they've gone and done those things enough. So I think it's, uh, yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes it unique because you think of martial arts people as these big tough guys some of the toughest people look like they could be your uh architect or your accountant like they're just little little fellas with uh with big brains yeah well i love the chess analogy that's that's exactly what i see when i watch it and like the old school ufc i feel like if you remember the video game street fighter where there's all these characters like that was ufc one Dude came in, he had one boxing glove on and was barefisted in the other one. But Gracie like beat this like 250 pound wrestler just because he was able to get him down on the ground. And it was chess. And he ended up like winning the first one and second one, I think, which is kind of what like was this big kind of like arrival of jujitsu, I feel like, in in America. Right. So yeah, he wore a gi in there. Yeah. He wore a full gi yeah. into the into the yeah, super well. I'm going to commit to it. One of the things we do at the Johnson house is like, I love starting at ground level with my kids because mm-hmm. then I can't be the guy that's saying, here's how you do it. I'm learning right along with them. And jujitsu has been on the list. I'm going to commit to, I will, I will do some jujitsu with the kids this year. So hold me to it. Awesome. Love it. Cool. Well, man, we've covered a ton of ground as we wrap here. I've got one last question for you. Mm-hmm. And We've talked a little bit about Do Business, Do Life, but this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. And I just, I think you embody it, Dan. I love how you show up. That's one of the criteria. So you mentioned how to keep the knuckleheads out, right? Yes, we do have super elite minimums as far as like coming into the community from a production standpoint. And by the way, that's not to be arrogant or be jerks. It's just like when you're going to go boutique and go really deep in a relationship, you just can't work with everyone. And so that was a decision we made early. But growth-minded, check, obviously, in every area in your life. And then do business, do life. That's the final criteria. Like we just want to... I want to look forward to the next experience that Triad puts on. Like Dan's going to be there. Sweet. We're going to talk UFC in the pool or whatever that may be. So... That's what we've tried so far. So far, it sounds like it's working, but I want to hear what is Dan's definition of do business, do life? How would you define that for the listeners out there? Well, I think for me personally, like I joke and say I'm a recovering fat guy, but I'm also a recovering workaholic. Mm. So to have a community that doesn't just brag, first of all, it's really weird that people aren't really bragging in that community. Like you don't really hear it. It's all so many humble people. And I know that I know what they're doing. They have plenty of things to be proud about, but you're not 
feeling that. Mm. But the idea that I have a community there that I can lean on, talk to, text with, communicate with, sit with, whatever, that isn't just about the numbers in our business is unique in itself, but also the bigger bragging points on the do life thing is like somebody saying, I want to work less hours and everybody in the community thinking that's a great idea. Mm. Like I, like I saw somebody like, Hey, I want to work averaging less than 20 hours a week. Like that's not me right now, but wow, what a, like who would have thought that that would be something that you guys would be promoting? <laughs> like, like it doesn't, it doesn't match what would be a typical FMO approach and style, and and the mannerisms are just different. They're different in every way. So I think doing the business is how we all got here, and no one in that in that room, if you will, wants to be average, and no one is. And so if you don't want to be average in business, you sure don't want to be average in life. Like, like that's just silly. Like, yeah. what, like you want to be, I want to be better at jujitsu, but it, does it really matter? No, no. I mean, let, I've done one tournament in jujitsu. Let me assure you, no one cares when old guys do jujitsu. I won the tournament, Brad, and no one cared. Congrats. <laughs> nope. Uh-uh. No one cared. (laughs) When I say no one cared, I mean no one cared. Like it's funny. It gives you perspective, and you're like, okay, I checked that box. But you realize, like, you're really. I go to jujitsu for Dan, which is why I tap easy. I tap often, and I just want to go be able to go to work knowing I I had a great morning with some people. And it's bigger for me to get their victory there. I get my victory like. I think it's like less than 20% of the people in the United States work a job they like. I love what I do for a while. Mm. So the work-life balance, I still need to, to keep working on it. It's going to evolve as much as it has the last 20 years. It will the next 20 years. Yeah. Well, that's awesome to hear. And we're going to help you get where you want to go. That was one of the things this year in Austin when we, we did a, we define a champagne moment. And that's, by the way, whether you drink or not, that can be some Something that you pop to celebrate is how we define a champagne moment. And But we wanted to do a do business champagne moment and a do life champagne moment for 12 months later. And now that I, I didn't realize you'd lost that much weight, that's awesome. But one of the things coming out of it that was awesome for me is we had multiple community members. I'm going to drop 60 pounds this year. Two of them are going to drop 60 pounds. Awesome. 15 pounds, 20 pounds. And like to me, what's all the money in the bank account matter if you're unhealthy? And you can't enjoy it. I mean, you, you'd give all that money up to get your health back at the end of the day. So that's the stuff that fires me up. And that's what I love about just being able to build this thing, how we all want to build it together. It's like, guess what? If we've got five members that are into jujitsu, by the way, I want to join that club. Let's bring somebody in and let's roll yeah. you know, at, the, oh, yeah. at the summer retreat. So yeah, I have the guys will travel like we'll throw them on the plane with me. We'll All get right. there. there we go. That was easy. That was easy. It's already set up. Well, Dan, I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, enjoy every conversation. Thanks for, for giving your time here. And I know this conversation will make an impact on a lot of advisors out there. So glad to have you in our crew. Or as we say at Triad, we run as a pack. So I'm glad to have Party you in pack, baby. And thanks for the time. Can't wait to get this out to the world. Absolutely. Excited to be part of the pack. It's It's unique. It's different. It's tough to know until you know, and then you know. 
<laughs> pretty, pretty profound. Hey, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. So, yeah, it's cool. All right, my man. Until right. the next time, we'll see you. Thanks. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.